This is a humble man recording. Scano, Sego, Ani, you're listening to the Red Road Podcast with Courtney Skye and Hayden King. You know what? Trying to trying to imitate any of these other podcasts is just it's just not our vibe. Yeah. No one likes ASMR. Why did I do that? <laughs> All we've received is complaints about our ASMR. Well, your ASMR. Well, I got one message that said, "Please do more ASMR," and I thought, "Why not start our second season with some ASMR?" And also to annoy some people that. <laughs> complained about the ASMR and then that last thing you heard was supposed to be paper ripping but it didn't really work out. apparently paper working is paper ripping is supposed to be a form of ASMR as well yeah there's a lot of things um I've seen like people do like ASMR makeup applications where they like rub their makeup brushes and stuff on their microphones and things like that you're supposed to smack your lips oh that's weird I don't like that one you have to be closer to the microphone. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's a... I don't know. Is this season two? Are we in season two Yeah, now? yeah, right, I guess we are. Not, it's spring. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, a new, it's a new season. Mm-hmm. It's a new season, both on the podcast and in the world around us. And Have you heard the frogs sing yet? No frogs. Seen some robins. Definitely um, seen some robins. My grandmother always said the most reliable person or most reliable creature to identify spring are frogs and the frogs will sing and go away and come back and they'll do that three times hmm. and the third time you hear the frog sing that's when you like reliably know that it's the spring third time, time. The yeah third the third time, time. Huh. so it is i've heard frogs once so far so we're in like a it's gonna snow at least one more time i think there's gonna you be another so? little cold spell huh yeah uh, I saw blossoms on the crab apple trees, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you know that's something. But mm-hmm. so I was trying to remember where I saw this. I think it was a Facebook conversation about you know we have this word for spring. I I mean I guess this is how languages work. We've mm-hmm. just basically just translated English, you know, Nishnabimon versions of English words. So we have these four four words for the seasons. But actually, there's like way more words for seasons and. Something like Zibuan is like false spring, and then there's another word for like second spring. So mm-hmm. that's what we're in right now, second spring. Mm-hmm. But it's spring anyway, or second winter, second winter, pre-spring. Um, pre-spring, yeah. Uh, but the days are getting longer, the sun is shining, so we are moving into spring on the red road and moving into another season on the red road. Still in traffic. We're still in traffic. It's been a, uh, it's been a little bit of a commute today got a ways to go so this uh even though we're starting season two we're gonna have a little bit of a hiatus again right or where are we yeah yeah so this is coming out when you're hearing this this episode will be when i am in vienna and then maybe next week when i return from vienna if we can figure 
some things out for the commute that week. There will be an episode. And then we should be back to normal after that. All right, back to normal. Yeah, but we're having, this is a, you know, we're unreliable in what, when the next episode may be coming. But, uh, yeah, season two, episode one, here we are. So you're saying that season two, just like episode one, is going to be ad hoc, haphazard, haphazard, you just got done unpredictable. Saying, yeah, you just got done saying we can't copy other podcasts vibes yeah right that's right that's right that's <laughs> this right this is our vibe well okay all right mm-hmm. it's uh just like the red road you for, never know what's gonna yeah. happen for as much as you rip on me for uh my rigidity there's no kind of <laughs> consistency in this uh, you rip on you for your rigidity more of, or my formalities i yeah, guess your punctuality yes yeah, so that kind of thing as soon as people on the, the listen to the podcast heard that, they're like, "This podcast is not punctual, <laughs> <laughs> and is inconsistent at best in its timing." Yeah, there's a little bit of uh, <laughs> a little contradiction there. Sometimes I know, like I think we were aiming for like Monday or Tuesday, so like most of the, most of the time that's when we're aiming to release the podcast. And I think the la- the last little break that we had where we missed a week. A couple of people messaged me and were like, are you still doing that podcast? <laughs> Release an episode already. And then I was yeah, like, oh right. shit, we need to like record something. They were like, are you still doing that awful podcast? Give <laughs> it up already. That's what they were really trying to say to you. People like our podcast. Yeah, some people like our podcast. Yeah, we have like a reliable like 200 people that are listening to every episode. Do you think so. they're listening to hear us talk about our podcast? No, they're <laughs> listening to hear us slander each other. Which is, yeah, the best well, part of our podcast. I see, I see. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you got any slanders? Um, you were chirping my uh, suit yes. the other day. Yes, I did chirp your suit the other day. Um, you were tweeting out pictures of yourself that other people were taking. <laughs> and I noticed that your tie looked pretty bad. And so you're it's talking about... It's a nice about... tie. It's a nice wool green tie. Oh. I wear ties so infrequently. Because I hate wearing mm-hmm. ties. But. I just said ties were bad karma. All right. But yeah. Ties were bad karma. So I wasn't tweeting out pictures of myself. So I was tweeting <laughs> a, a tweet, retweeted a tweet <laughs> promoting the event. Anyway, it was this event in Ottawa that uh, I participated in with, with a, a number of fantastic people. But it was in, it was in like this fancy club in Ottawa that has like a members only sort of thing it's like a lot of old rich white people I mean the event was open to the public and you know it was a breakfast uh, we were able to get native people to go to not have to pay and all that sort of stuff but nonetheless it was the audience it was a very sort of stuffy event mm-hmm. it was one of those events where um, you know this is something white people do this, this is like there's, there's, a, there's a number of rules that you can apply to white people when you're an indigenous person Maybe an indigenous public intellectual. You mm-hmm. give a lot of talks. That's kind of thing. there's a number of rules that you can you can just you can set your watch to that white people will do these things. Mm-hmm. So what happened to me at this event? Not uncommon, you know. After I after I give a talk somewhere, there will always be people that want want to like come up and you know ask a question or make a comment. And there is this phenomenon where it's often old white men, but not always, but often old white men will will come up to you and explain that you know i i really believe there's momentum towards reconciliation and this is <clears throat> sorry i should do a white person voice mm-hmm. i i really believe that there's <laughs> momentum towards reconciliation sorry i can't do that 
and you know, you people have come so far, and and uh, it's a wonderful thing to see. And Canada should be proud. But you know, I, I, I've been here for eight generations, and and I just see so many. It, there's, it's very difficult. The native people they came twelve thousand years ago, and they displaced other native people. And the way that the world works today, I mean, that the land is really never going to be re returned in that way. And so we have to think very practically about what our options are. And <clears throat> and on and on and on they go. Basically, they they want me to validate their ongoing colonial behaviors. That's what they want. Yeah. They want me to say, you know, yeah, you're right. It's it's really difficult to do anything, and mm -hmm. so we'll just not do anything. Yeah. That's one thing. That's one thing that, mm -hmm. that white people will do. That, but uh, it was particularly annoying to have. To, and I was so you're tired after giving a talk. You're on a stage for two hours, and then you have to put up with this shit. It's you know, exhausting. Mm -hmm. You know? You ever yeah. get that? Yeah, I get that. Um, I also gave a talk yesterday. I was talking to students, though, and talking about youth engagement. But, yeah, I think that there's definitely that kind of thing that happens where... Um, people want you to validate something that they also probably would not label in themselves as being racist or colonial, but they don't know how to, or don't self-reflect on their own positionality and their relationship or where these beliefs manifest or come from. So I think that kind of like lack of critical self-awareness is incredibly common. And uh, I think it's yeah. the lack of awareness of the limitations they impose on themselves like yeah. they don't understand mm -hmm. they don't see mm -hmm. that they can actually make change and they can participate in restitution and they they can do all these things uh if they chose but they're not willing to sacrifice their comfort yeah or their convenience i think that i experienced this in a different way so i worked on a project with a um Indigenous organization, so we were representing, you know, Indigenous perspectives, and we were working with a very well-meaning white woman who had recently bought a, a piece of property, and she was like, you know, you Indians are always talking about wanting land back, and we bought this farm, and we have all of this, you know, we want to eventually have horses, but there's one paddock that we have that's basically unusable. You know, we can't use it for anything. It's not, doesn't serve a good purpose. So if you want, you can come and grow your medicines there and you can use it. And I will let you use this like small inhospitable piece of land that is two and a half hours away from here and you can grow your, your whatever you need there. And why aren't you grateful for my garbage? As it was essentially her, her thing, right? She was talking about this like weird, like rocky, you know, I think it was probably like 10 feet by 12 feet, hmm. you know, poster stamps kind of thing. And when we were like, so when me and the other indigenous people were in the room, we're like, mm, that doesn't seem like a great deal. <laughs> it seems like not very useful. And also if you just bought 12 acres of land and your idea of restitution is like a little rocky piece of thing that's like that size, it's like, hmm, this is like a real... Reminds me of the reserve system a mm -hmm, little bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is, you know, not the conversation I thought we'd be having. I would think that, you you know, this white person is having a, a lot of, you know, a position of power and influence would think a little bit more critically about their direct work because we were there calling out the entire process that they were undertaking 
as being like incredibly racist and violent. And they were like, well, let us do this racist and violent thing to you in this policy sector, but I will personally give you a little, you know, a poster stamp of land that you can't have, but you can use. Yeah. Well, it was like uh, that story I told about, (laughs) this, this happened after another talk I gave where the woman came up to me and talked about how she was living on land my ancestors once lived on and they, they had like a little corner of the property that they were tolerated on. Uh, yeah, okay, so we've got the stubborn, you know, the, the stubborn white person that uh, seeks validation. We have the charitable white person that thinks they're the reconciliatory messiah. Um, another thing that you can guarantee this is I guarantee you I will wager a pop you try this at home try this at not try this at home try this at a conference try this at at an event anywhere there are native people with non-native people gathered in one place and two native people are talking in view of white people I guarantee they will be interrupted by a white person Mm -hmm. guarantee wanting something from one of the two participants in the conversation or wanting to join the conversation, but it happens almost 100% of the time in spaces like that for me. And you have to like self-consciously struggle to not break your concentration with the person you're having your conversation with. Don't, don't look around the room. Mm -hmm. Don't, you know, make any sudden body movements that might be interpreted as an opening for white people. Mm-hmm. You have to maintain mm-hmm. discipline. Because, and even if you yeah. do those things, you'll still get interrupted. Because you're trying to have a conversation, right? Like, it's like if we were to go out, people always are trying to eavesdrop on your conversation. Or if you move <laughs> in a certain way, they're like, oh, I, I kind of overheard you saying this. Or I kind of heard you. Oh, are you guys, I saw you were talking about this, right? And they want to jump in. And, like, inject their perspectives into, like, how do you, you know, how do you feel about land acknowledgements and that kind of stuff, right? And it's just the... There's the linger. The linger uh, is bad. So you're, say, say you and I are having a conversation and there's the polite white person that doesn't actually interrupt. They will linger, like, three feet and crane their head towards you and some, you know, they know that... That 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 you know they're there listening, but they think that it's okay to do. Like you're in this public venue, and what you say is our words for all people's consumption in the room, white people and non-native people. So the linger is a variation on the settler interruptus. Yeah. So I think that was one of the that was like because I think it's even if you're having a side conversation. You know, if you go to events or, like, you run into different Native people, especially if you're going to, like, different things, sometimes you're there seeing, uh, you know, friends you haven't seen in a while or, you know, colleagues you're trying to connect with. You're trying to have, like, a relatively private conversation, but then people see you there trying to have, like, a private exchange, and they're just kind of like, well, no, this, you're here for my consumption. I have, you know, these ridiculous conversations that I need to have or, you know, questions that I want to bring up. I don't have any... You know, they're probably so, they like don't have anyone in their immediate sphere where they have these conversations. So they just like pounce on native, visibly, usually visibly native people or like well-known mm-hmm. native people to then ask these questions. And you end up having these, I don't know, I feel like I have these a lot of conversations too, where you're just kind of like, oh yeah, thanks or whatever, right? And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
And maybe, I mean, I think that that's an interesting point between the sort of quote-unquote visibly or racialized Native person versus the not. And I wonder about my position as, like, you know, a sometimes passing, especially in these settings, Native person. Do, like, white people feel... I think this is for sure. I mean, white people feel less threatened by me. Mm-hmm. So they're more open to, like, interrupting my conversation maybe. But, you know, you're saying that it happens even with oh, visibly yeah. Native people. So uh, like... Yeah. It also happens... I've done a lot of, like, public consultations. I remember, like, when I first started doing youth advocacy, like, one of the first kind of, like, tables or whatever I was asked to join. And it was a youth advisory council so they brought in all of these like a lot of a disproportionate amount of racialized youth to provide advice to a minister and so we were having like a breakfast or whatever they wanted to have like uh and the minister was going to be there at the time and so a lot of the uh, you know all of the native people and then a couple of racialized uh people from northern ontario we were all sitting at one table and the minister walked in and we all looked at each other and made like ex- you know, aggressive eye contact and we're like, do not look brown. She is going to look around this room, scan it, see where the most brown people are and run over to us. She's going to beeline it to us and she is going to want pictures with us. Yeah. Yeah. And we were like, do not make eye contact. Do not look. And we were like, do not, we were looking at each other and we're like whispering like, don't look brown. Don't look brown. Don't look brown. And you know, the door was on the other side of the room. This minister beelines it towards us wants to start talking and one of my buddies who was at that table was from Fort William and engaged the minister in an argument about whether or not she had had a meeting at the bingo hall in Fort William or not and she had brought with her like a video crew like a videographer that wanted to film her interacting with youth and he would not let this conversation about the bingo hall go and just kept you know kept circling back to the bingo hall and she was like I don't think we're in the bingo hall and he was like you don't think I know my own community and how big the buildings are there's no possible way you were anywhere but the bingo hall and it just kept that going and then finally she left and he was like good she didn't get anything usable out of me you can't exploit me or use me but like, <laughs> don't make eye contact with the white woman. Yeah, don't make eye contact <laughs> with the white yeah. minister. Yeah, <laughs> definitely do not do that. It's because there are all these defense mechanisms that Native people have <laughs> created, right? That is completely the white people are completely oblivious to because obviously there's that that tremendous arrogance uh, that sort of saturates their presence in any room with Native people. And like you like you said, mm-hmm. it's you know this is for white consumption. When Native people are on a panel or doing a consultation or, or are in conversation in some way with white people, it's Native people are there for consumption. Um, so there's that right to interrupt. There's that right to linger. There's that right to explain to you. Um, or be, you know, openly uh, racist in, in some ways. But... I mean, I don't think that we should disclose this on the, these on the podcast. <laughs> but, like, there are all kinds yeah. of things we do to I avoid know. white people. I know. I hope. I hope that by the time we've gotten this many episodes into the podcast, all of the, um, I feel like we uh, talk at a level that's like not easily accessible to people who don't understand native politics. I'm hoping we've like managed to wean out a lot of those people <laughs> that are trying to like decipher this. Um, a surprisingly small amount of people from Ottawa listen to this podcast. So, oh, don't kid yourself. Yeah. There are people listening to this and, and weaponizing it in their, you know, the, all the white I the white so. consultants are listening to this oh. and weaponizing it. That's uh, 
That's mm-hmm. the risk we run, I guess. So we're I not gonna so. we're not yeah. gonna disclose our our tips and tricks for no. uh, uh, white people avoidance. Well, I think because a lot of Native people know them already. Yeah, for sure. And then also, um, well, yes, um, mm-hmm. a lot of Native people know them already. But mm-hmm. there are also those allies. <clears throat> you know the the really woke allies that think they know, mm-hmm. that they have been told by other Native people mm-hmm. how it works and what to do and what, what, and what not to do. Mm-hmm. But those people are often sometimes the worst. So, so, so here's another thing that, that mm-hmm. uh, problematic white people do is they will listen. They will think that they were listening mm-hmm. um, and then go away with their own completely contrary interpretation of what just happened. Yeah. I, they're... A, so this happened to me recently. I had a a good colleague, or, or you know, a colleague who was you know um, ally versus accomplice. I would say he fell more into the accomplice kind of category. But we were at some kind of like staff meeting, and someone cornered me and was like, "So what do you think about land acknowledgments?" And I was like, "Oh fuck, I don't really like them." But I didn't want to get into it because this meeting was starting, and it was like freaking eight thirty in the morning. And I was like, oh, you know, and my buddy like overheard this conversation. And then afterwards he was like, oh man, I heard, you know, that asshole so-and-so asking all those weird questions. And I was like, yeah, you're supposed to come and interrupt when that's happening (laughs) and save me from those situations. Like you should be running interference and you should be engaging other white people in these conversations. So they're not wasting my time and my energy and Mm. my ability to do my work with having to explain basic ass shit. I was like, you know this, you know these issues, you can talk about them as well as that person is able to understand. Like, why are you not going and doing that? I'm like, you saw how uncomfortable I was and how terrible it was. and You didn't do anything about it to like help me out in that situation. The settler collector. That's, we need more of the settler collector. That, mm-hmm. So that's a, you know, that's a good ally. That's mm-hmm. a, that's a, that's a, I, I'm not entirely sure about this distinction between accomplished mm-hmm. and, and ally, to be honest with you, because in my work, I have come across so few, in my professional life, I think, mm-hmm. so few, like, really solid white people that understand. And I'm not really actually sure white people can ever understand. Mm-hmm. Um... And obviously there's this very complex conversation about what whiteness is and who's white and expressing the qualities of whiteness, even when you're indigenous. Um, but though I, I, I think that what you're saying about the set, that's a useful role for people, mm-hmm. especially for these, you know, woke people, mm-hmm. but they can often be the worst, you know, they can often be, oh, they yeah. can often perpetuate the most harm because they get into, you know, the guy that interrupts me or the guy that, uh, that, corners me after a conference. I mean, they're not in our communities. They're not in our networks. They're so forward. They're they're alienated purposefully. But we do let some non-Indigenous people into our networks and it can be these people that are actually the most problematic. Yeah, they can be the most violent. I think they can also be the most extractionary. I think they, you know, a lot of times they engage Native people in, you know, what are your thoughts or what do you think about this? Or like, oh, I saw your tweets. And then they like use it to inform their own work and they get uh, they get yes, funding off yes. of it that you know they get research grants they do all that kind of stuff and they're saying oh we're doing it in allyship with communities and it's like how are you actually empowering actual indigenous people like when is the when are those people actually taking a step back and like keeping their mouths shut and like 
creating space, right? Because like, it's another way that people control and maintain power, right? Where it's like, they start to act as like gatekeepers Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. they use their relationships with other indigenous people over um, native people, right? So like people who are friends with like, you know, native people that have more status in our communities or whatever, those white people turn and use that against other indigenous people or how to use it to their advantage. And it happens all the time. Like, I wouldn't say, like, that there are people who haven't done this. Like, I have some friends who have, like, large Twitter followings. And recently, someone whose organization got their funding cut, who I, like, kind of know and worked with a little bit, they messaged me and was like, I need some of your friends to tweet about this for me. Can you get your friends to tweet about this? And I was like, no. I never ask my friends to tweet about anything. It's their platform. It's what they decide to do. I'm not going to go and advocate on your issue and, like, you using me as a conduit to get Mm -hmm, to other people. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm like, that's not why those people trust me and why we're friends. Right. And that happens so often. So so we've got two... In our classification (laughs) system that we're establishing on the fly here, we've also got the... Uh, extractive white mm-hmm. person that takes from mm-hmm. communities, exploits the mm-hmm. labor of communities, the ideas of communities. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a discussion not too long ago about uh, about this mm-hmm. on social media and people locked their mm-hmm. accounts because what was happening is, mm-hmm. especially young indigenous women were putting all these mm-hmm. ideas out on Twitter and then the next thing you know they're appearing in academic journals uh, but written by non-native people without, of course, any citation or acknowledgement. There's the extractive, the exploitative, and then there's the gatekeeper one. I think that you're that's a that's a really important one because you do have some of these, you know, woke white people that that uh, are seen as credible, are seen as authorities, and so, so then all the other white people, instead of going to an actual native person, will go to that person because they've been validated, or at least they've been perceived to be validated. Uh, and then they start making decisions and uh, speaking on behalf of and uh, defining the best interests of uh, uh, indigenous people. I mean, that's where we got situations like, I mean, well, it's not exactly the same, but it's like Joseph Boyden, you know, you have like mm-hmm. white people talking to each other about what reconciliation is. Yeah. Uh, and I think that like, while we're being super critical of like white people, like this is also like this and you know, that conversation, critical conversation about what whiteness is, but it's also like the way in which we all uphold it and the way that we all participate in its construction and maintenance, right? Because there are definitely Native people that, like, don't care that Joseph Boyden is white. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they validate him and they create that space in their communities for him. Yes. And they extend that license to him too, right? So we're all complicit in upholding those structures, right? We all are compelled to challenge those. You know, there's that story that came out about that indigenous contractor that wants like 1.2 million dollars from a remote community and it's like hey that's kind of exploitative you've taken a model was he native yeah he was native you've taken a model of like white consultants and then put it onto communities and you're doing the same thing to them Mm -hmm. you're doing the Mm -hmm. same kind of you know exploitation of the poor social conditions that indigenous people live in and you're just taking that 10 percent for yourself instead of saying hey maybe having consultants that work on uh, 10% of multi-million dollar contracts isn't useful when it could be going to something like housing yeah. in communities yeah. that have a huge lack of infrastructure. I, I, I mean, absolutely. I, I think that Native people are 100% capable of adopting whiteness as a mentality, which is how I've always thought of, of whiteness. Uh, and it is definitely prevalent in our in our communities, I think, um, and that's a good example. And I guess we should say, 
you know, despite the sort of annoying things and harmful things that a lot of white people do, um, you know, there are there are some decent ones. There's, mm. some, there's some decent ones. They can act decent not, at some points. Not all white people. <laughs> not all white people and not all the time. I think that's a thing too, right? That there are people that have definitely like behaved in some really shady ways that I know other people really trust that I've had bad experiences with. And so I have a hard time to that. I, you know, I extend a lot of space and try to be very gracious around people that have like, that are validated by communities that I would normally go after and be like, call them out for their, you know, harmful behaviors. And then I have, you know, native people that I trust being like, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt, give them the mm-hmm, benefit of the mm-hmm. doubt. And you're like, okay, well maybe I, you know, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say anything. And they continue to act problematic. Like that is really frustrating, but you know, it's, it's all, I think what it boils down to is how we're maintaining our relationships with one another in a way that's accountable Mm -hmm. and whether or not you're willing to actually engage in, in conversations and in relationships that are, you know, in a sense ethical that you're, you're constantly assessing and evaluating and moving on, but also acknowledging that harm that happens when it happens. Yeah. So you mention or around the edges, at least one of our, another, another category in our classification, Mm -hmm. which is the white person that exploits Mm -hmm. division. Yes. So if there's a difference of opinion between Native people and the white person has to decide what to do, then they get to default to their own mm-hmm. uh, values and their own interests because yeah. the Native people can't decide. So mm-hmm. uh, therefore, I, have now, I now have the uh, alibi to go and cause this particular harm on this particular community because the Indians just, they just can't, they just can't make up their minds. Yeah. And it's always situational, right? Like all these different things happen and like they happen, you know, sometimes it can be one person behaving in a way, behaving in this way in like multiple different instances, but it could also just be like, like one-off situations, right? So it's kind of like someone is really trusted and validated in one circumstance. They're very harmful and problematic in one way. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about like, you know, or... There was a, an instance where um, in an urban community, a lot of the Native people that were organizing there got very frustrated with a white person in the community. And they were in the process of, like, calling out and enacting accountability for this person for, like, the things that they were writing online that were very problematic. And then um, Native people that weren't a part of that community jumped in to save that white person mm-hmm. from the criticisms that they were being lobbed at against the, and their, <clears throat> from their local indigenous community. And that is really, really hard to deal with. Yeah. And there's a role that we all play in like both like upholding the criticisms of the indigenous people that were trying to enact accountability, but also the accountability for the native person that was defending someone without knowing the full context of what was happening, right? Because sure. they were outside of the community. And so we, you know, where we exist in relation to like all the different people that exist in this, all these different circumstances is really important. Right. And that's, I think part of like why all these other conversations around like catering to white people learning, gets so exhausting because people don't see that invisible work of like how much effort we put right. into maintaining right. relationships right. Right. and dealing with these problems that happen because they do happen in really critical spaces where you're trying to advance, you know, advocacy or policy issues or research and you're trying to get programs done for 
communities and then you have to go and you actually have to do the real work of like maintaining relationships mm-hmm. and there are you know and it sucks because there aren't a lot of native people right there yeah. were a very small labor population intensive. yeah but there's also not enough people to like physically do all the work that needs to get done yeah. so there has you know there are people there are spaces necessarily where you, you know need those white folks where other people or other racialized people where they come in and they do have to you know help help our communities right yeah. whether it's like through delivering of <laughs> services or helping write reports or do research and it's so frustrating because it's so fraught with all of this like harm yeah. and pain yeah that i don't think and i, I just don't think that those mm-hmm. non-native people see you know they just it's invisible it's just mm-hmm. invisible and uh um and that just compounds the problem. And and since since it's invisible to them, they don't really realize their behavior is resulting in in, in some cases trauma, mm-hmm. in other cases resentment and annoyance, anger. Um, then it just sort of gets perpetuated. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe not so much in the examples that you're mm-hmm. talking about, because you are very much saying you know mm-hmm. there's this relationality and accountability that. Mm-hmm. Uh, is accompanies these relationships. And I wonder if this is like a very Nishnabek versus Mohawk thing or a very <laughs> male versus female thing where it's like, uh, I might pursue a passive-aggressive <laughs> approach. The Nishnabek would be like, okay, this isn't working out. Pure avoidance. Yeah. It's just like isolation, containment. Yeah. And then because it's our culture, it's just assumed that you understand that. Yeah. It's like, white people, don't you get it? Like, yeah. this avoidance means you fucked up. Yeah. That's like, that happens a lot in our relationship, too, where, like, I don't know how to read these cues. And there's so many times where, like, we fight because I'm like, if you have something to say, just say it. I'm sick of this. Like, are you being passive or are you just being avoided? I'm like, we have to talk about this. And so that is, like, I think it's cultural. For, personally, I think that y'all are, deal with your problems differently. Yes. Um, but... At the same time, too, it's, like, people need to pick up on those cues, right, and recognize the fact that, like, not all Native people are Native people. So, like, if you are working with a Anishinaabek community, you have to change how you behave to accommodate the cultural norms of that community. Mm-hmm. And you have to operate differently within, like, a Haudenosaunee context because we problem-solve and relate to each other in a different way. And that's so important. And I think it's also, like, part of my... Part of, like, the growth and, I think, some of the changes that I've been making is that I used to, you know, there's, like, these feminists or whatever kind of beliefs around canceling people and, like, social isolation. And I really, I have a really hard time myself accepting that because I don't believe that accountability is enacted in isolation. I think that part of it is, like, you have to, you know, you can't cut people off and you can't, you know, separate them that part of being a community, part of being a nation is accepting the bad parts of that as well. And part of our assertions of jurisdiction have to come with problem solving and confronting some of the really hard things that are going on in our communities, right? Especially when it comes to things like, you know, dealing with child welfare, dealing with child abuse, dealing with sexual violence. Those issues are huge issues. And if we're going to lead and build nations and we have to have a way to deal with and address all of those realities. Mm-hmm. So, white people, if you've made it this far into the podcast without tuning out. Uh, without or, tweeting at us and being like, Courtney Hayne and our racist against white people. Us. Um, there's hope for you yet. <clears throat> I guess. So, I mean, hey, 
Some, uh, we all, uh, you know, so there, there's many, many relationships with, with white people that continue on. We, like, write these, like, descriptions of our episode, obviously, after for the podcast. But it's going to be the one this week. Don't add us. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Well, hey, man. Half of my, half my family is white. And uh, there are many people that I love who are white. And relationships. My, some of my best friends are white. <laughs> I have white friends, okay? Uh, it's interesting how sometimes these politics don't... You know, like, I'm going to go play cards with my white friends and just not talk about whiteness. And it's Okay. Am I a hypocrite? Uh, a little bit. I think it's also like, um, yeah, and I think it's also like you build trust, right, with those people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely think there are white friends that I've had where I thought they were cool, and then you actually are confronted with a topic, and you're like, oh, we can't be friends. And you lose friendships yes, in that true. way, right? It's true. It really yeah. sucks because I had a very good friend who we were so close, and we worked together, and it was... I thought he was so great and a huge ally. And then he started dating this white woman who didn't believe feminism was needed in community. Like, it was needed at all in society. And it was like, oh, you have so much privilege that you don't agree that there's a a need to have, like, women's empowerment. And so I expelled, you know, a moderate amount of effort, um... Uh, you know, with this w- woman trying to, like, figure out what her perspectives were on this. And then essentially got to a point where I was like, this isn't worth it for me. And this was, like, someone who my friend was dating very casually. And I was like, I am not going to expel this much effort into making dinner comfortable with your side piece. Yeah, like, yeah, this is not yeah. something that's worth it for me. It's so attractive. <clears throat> it's so draining. I don't want to invest this time in this person. And he was like, yeah. He's like, fine, whatever. <laughs> and then they ended up getting, like... Freaking, they have a kid now. Yeah. And I lost that friend because I don't sure. like his partner. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, frick, like, I thought you were cool. How can you tolerate someone who doesn't understand the world we live in at all and how any of this works? Mm-hmm. And then it makes you question your friends, right? Because you're like, oh, you really are just looking for someone that's going to, like, appease and uphold you. And you can be the smart one in the relationship. And you can have someone that's just, like, tolerant of you in your problematic ways. Okay, that's right. cool. <laughs> Yeah, so we're we're veering into the uh, the personal here. Yes, which that is, person knows which exactly is, who they are. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I guess it was okay, but also as a Mohawk, we've had this conversation <laughs> face to face already. Um, but we have also this wasn't actually meant to be a podcast today. <laughs> so season two, we were gonna start with talking about cultural appropriation and I guess we'll do that in our next podcast yeah I guess we'll figure that out so we're so close to where you were we just we just started ranting about <laughs> white people so it was welcome to be, back to the red road this was supposed to be a nice episode about ASMR and cultural appropriation yeah, right. well uh, we, we messed that up whatever all right back on so, our bullshit <laughs> yeah yeah so enjoy Vienna Courtney Thank you. Thank you. Am I allowed to say that you're going to Vienna? Did you yeah, I think I said Vienna? I was going to Vienna. Okay. I've been tweeting about it, so if anyone that's on my okay. Twitter will know that I've been... Right. The, the heart of whiteness. Oh, listen. I was, I, the conference is at the palace where Hitler <laughs> took over during the invasion what? of Austria. Yeah, it's like actually at like the presidential palace or whatever. And I, wow. like the first time I went to this conference, I remember being there and being like, Huh. 
why, you know, because I've been to a couple places in Europe, and I'm like, why is this place so nice? And then I remembered, oh, right, the Second World War, Hitler, cool, what, yeah, God. world history, all right, cool, this is what they were talking about when I was ignoring uh, settler constructs and education in high school, all right, awesome. <laughs> I thought Ottawa was bad. Yeah. This is the thing, too, right? Like, I travel to Europe, and people are like, oh, you're going to travel around? And I'm like, no, I don't like looking at anything. I like going to my conferences. I will enjoy some food, and then I'm going to come home because it's uh, really overwhelming. And it's like you can feel the land. You can feel the energy from the land about how much it hates you <laughs> there. Like, kind of how I feel like when I'm in Al- Algonquin territory. Oh, wow. It just feels like the land hates me as a Mohawk person. Yes, yes. That, well, that, you know, it's true. All right. Well, enjoy it, and uh, thanks everyone for listening to our our rant about whiteness today. And um, we'll catch you next time on season two of the Red Road Podcast. You've been listening to the Red Road Podcast, created by Courtney Sky and Hayden King. Sounding audio editing by Humble Man Recording. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, Google Play, SoundCloud, and iTunes. I've been driving in my Indian car. To the pound of the wheel